Now, Jesus Christ explained the time and the circumstances around the time that he was going to be crucified and killed and then resurrected. This is a fascinating study as we jump into Matthew 26 today. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembry. And I'm Janice. And this is a program taking you through the Bible. First time we've been in the New Testament. And in Matthew 26, we're going to learn some interesting things today. So stay there. Corey is here. Corey? Today we are taking a look at Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives. Ryan? Today we read about the Passover. And my segment today shows how Jesus ultimately fulfilled this feast during his earthly ministry. Very interesting stuff. And Janice? Willing to give. All right, so take your Bible out, the most important book of all, and then take your Bible guide out. We'll send you one if you don't know how to get one, so stay there. We'll explain that in just a few moments. But let's focus on what God is saying to us today, and let's listen to his word as it speaks to our soul. Matthew 26, 1 through 13. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And when Jesus was in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him, having an alabaster flask of very costly, fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not always have. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 13. Matthew chapter 26 is what we study today. We've slowed down just for a little bit here because we need to truly understand what God is doing. In Jesus' time, the application of oil had a few different purposes. It was used daily to moisturize face and skin. It could be used medically, and it could be used ceremonially to prepare someone for a special event. This preparation was what the woman did when she anointed Jesus with costly perfume oil. Now, Jesus was preparing to face the wrath of the priest, the anger of the scribes, and the attitudes of the Pharisees. Many of them had become 
passionately anti-Jesus. They were actually and actively teaching against him and believed that he would he'd be better dead. They believed his teaching would stop and the people would get to see what happens to anyone who taught against them. Matthew 26 highlights an interesting contrast to their corrupt authority. Records a woman, a woman in Bethany, who in love and gratefulness, her heart knew more than any religious leader's hearts knew. And she honored God by anointing him. As a result, God honors her by recording for all future generations this sacrificial offering with a deep, meaningful impact. This is an amazing story. We're in Matthew chapter 26. And as God speaks to us today, we're going to pray and ask him, take your Bible guide and turn to it as we focus on this, because this is really important. The 26th chapter and the first 13 verses is very interesting. And if you don't have a Bible guide, call us or write to us or go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com. <clears throat> Click on the Bible guide. It'll take you to a page of donate. Thank you for your donation. Then it'll take you to a place where you can download it exactly how we have published it. Father, I pray today in the name of Jesus Christ. As we slow down and focus on the 26th chapter of this wonderful book that you would teach us your way and show us your path. What do I mean by that? Lord, that you would help us to learn how you do things. Teach us that the things we thought were foolish by people may not be. That you may have called us to do things to offer to you and to give you. But Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you would help us to learn from this passage today. We need to learn. Thank you, Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, and we said together, amen and amen. Now, let's focus on this because this is really important. Matthew chapter 26, let's begin with verse 1. Now, it came to pass when Jesus had finished all of these sayings that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. What? Yes, he will. Then the chief of priests, the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace at the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Interesting. You see, Jesus explained the time and the circumstances around his crucifixion. The Lord knows everything about us the past, the present, and the future. The Lord knows everything about us. The Lord knows everything about you, your past, your present, and your future. And here's my question. If we are so right and understand everything and make our own decisions, we don't know the future, do we? How can we make good decisions if we don't follow God, if we don't allow ourselves to be guided by the power of the Holy Spirit, who does know the future, how can we do that if we don't know God, if we don't 
trust God. You know what is said on the American dollar bill? In God we trust. Do we? Interesting. Well, let's move on. Matthew chapter 26, verse 6 says, And when Jesus was in Bethany, the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flax, a very costly, fragrant oil. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. What's the matter? The anointing of Jesus was misunderstood by the closest people to him. Beloved, let's be careful not to misunderstand the forgiveness of God. When God forgave us, he gives us a new heart. We can misunderstand because when we receive the Holy Spirit, it's like we know everything. We're going to tell everybody. But hold on a minute. We've been freed from our sin. We are learning about God and we're growing in relationship with him, beloved. We need to learn and our rest of our life is spent learning about how Jesus Christ would do these things. You know, that's very important. Very important. And I can imagine these disciples getting all ticked off at this and this woman wasted this money and all that. But what did, what did Jesus Christ say about this? What was his comment on it? Because the people closest to him were trying to say, well, see, she wasted it. Let's look at what Jesus said. In verse 10, But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. Notice that she did that for Jesus. She's done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. What? Assuredly, I say to you, whenever this good news is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. What the woman did held deep meaning. She did it for Christ. And Jesus said it would be told in memory of her. Things are not always what they seem to be to us. We should listen to God. I need to tell you something. We broadcast on many stations. We're on the internet. We just told her story. Story of the woman anointing Jesus Christ. Think about that. Her story continues to be told. She didn't do it to be known. She did it for Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus Christ in his unbelievable mercy and grace makes her actions knowable to all of us. We need to learn how to do what God tells us in the time that God tells us to do it. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you clap and when you get excited, you are celebrating life.
Do you understand that? Jesus Christ gave us life. But he promised that the Holy Spirit would be sent. Okay, today we are taking a look at Gethsemane, often referred to as the Garden of Gethsemane. We learn from Matthew 24 and Matthew chapter 26 as well uh, that Jesus had made a routine in this final week of his life of teaching in the temple complex by day and staying overnight in Gethsemane or at Gethsemane. So where was he staying? Was it just outside? Was it in a garden? Was it amongst the olive trees? Where was it? Take a look. Pilgrims to the Holy Land have been visiting Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives for nearly 2,000 years. Today, the most popular attraction is an orchard of eight large olive trees that date to about 1200 AD, though their parent tree may have come from the trees that grew there during Christ's time. All of the original trees that no doubt gave the Mount of Olives its name were cut down, as recorded by Josephus, by the Romans in their siege of Jerusalem. From what the Gospels tell us, Jesus frequented the Mount of Olives during his last week of ministry before the crucifixion. It was the spring festival of Passover, and Jerusalem would have been crowded with visitors. Luke and Matthew tell us that Jesus' routine during that time was teaching in the temple complex by day and spending his evenings and nights on the Mount of Olives. Matthew and Mark specify that Jesus and his disciples went to a place called Gethsemane at the foot of the Mount of Olives. The word Gethsemane means oil press. And John tells us that they entered into a garden or cultivated area. So according to a close reading of the Gospels, Jesus spent the nights of his last week in a garden near the foot of the Mount of Olives in a place called Gethsemane or oil press. Today, in addition to the Garden of Olive Trees, visitors may also go to the cave or grotto of Gethsemane. Now, while this has become less popular over the ages, historically, this cave was the site associated with Jesus' stay, prayer, and arrest. Due to its veneration as a holy site, the cave has been modified. Its modern stone floor is about 40 inches above the original cave floor and was itself built over the remains of two levels of Byzantine mosaics. Its ceiling and wall decorations date to the medieval period, and the entrance of the cave is not original. The original mouth of the cave was a large 16 feet wide, and despite all of the later modifications, there are still visible original features. Archaeologists believe the cave was once an olive press, perhaps two olive presses, a large cistern, channel in the floor, and large carved recess in the cave wall are all indicative of this. Beyond this, ancient pilgrim reports speak of four cut recesses in the walls, indicating a double press, and a 9th century report tells of four round or curved tables that should probably be understood as the lens-shaped crushing stones from the original press. Gethsemane as a cave would make sense of the gospel accounts. In the cool spring, it would be safer and more comfortable to stay the night in a warm cave. The Gospels even tell us that the night Jesus was arrested, it was quite cool, causing Peter to warm himself by an open fire. Also, the account of the young man sleeping in nothing but his undergarment makes sense if the disciples were camping in a cave rather than out in the elements. 
So there we go. I think the cave, the, the oil press at, at Gethsemane makes a whole lot of sense. You know, Christian history helps us out with that. Archaeology helps us out with that. So it's always really, really handy when, when, when the stars align in that way and can give us some explanation for what we read in the Gospels. You know, there's a lot of Christian history and there's a lot of Jewish history in the Bible, but we mm -hmm. can't teach that. We, we teach the Bible. Yeah. Uh, and it, but it is fascinating to read the Christian history. It really is. Yes, especially in cases where it just really helps us understand what was going on. We, yeah. we know there was a cave, there was an oil press. It was very large at the Garden of Gethsemane. So the time of year lines up, Jesus probably stayed in there. Very good. Where he was. Thank you, Corey. Ryan? Okay, so our reading today, of course, is Matthew chapter 26, which records that Jesus and his disciples celebrated Passover. And as the Apostle Paul pointed out in his writings, Jesus ultimately fulfilled this, and that's why Paul referred to him as the Passover lamb. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Jewish festivals and the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. The Jewish festivals, which God laid out in Leviticus 23, were all just shadows of the real substance that was to come, and that substance is Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to talk about the first four feasts and how they were fulfilled in Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. It is in the 23rd chapter of Leviticus that God first unveils his calendar for the appointed feasts and festivals of Israel. And it is through these holy convocations that God discloses his outline for the future. Even though not obvious at the time, the feasts were nevertheless precisely spaced and dated because they represented God's timetable of events by which he is moving through history. Therefore, it is not insignificant that Leviticus 23 presents seven feasts in total four in the spring and three in the fall. The first of these feasts, Passover, commemorates the time God spared the children of Israel during their final hours in Egypt when the angel of death passed over those houses which had lamb's blood painted around their doors. As the Apostle Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Passover typifies or prefigures the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our ultimate Passover lamb, who was, of course, also crucified on a Passover. The second spring feast, Unleavened Bread, occurs the day following Passover, and it too commemorates Israel's sojourn in Egypt, when God commanded his people to remove all leaven from their houses. Just as yeast causes bread to rise, so sin causes our hearts to swell with pride. In conjunction with Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread looks to the cross of Christ, where sin was put away. The third feast, the Feast of Firstfruits, is observed every year before the spring harvest, on the day after the Sabbath. At this festival, the Israelites are required to offer the Lord the first and best of their harvests. Again, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 plainly tells us what this feast typifies, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ when he became the firstfruits of many resurrected bodies. Just as Jesus died on Passover as the ultimate Passover lamb, he also rose three days later on the Feast of Firstfruits. The fourth and final spring festival is called the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, and was celebrated 50 days after the Feast of Firstfruits. It was during this festival that the Israelites offered up to God burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings. Most notably of these are the two loaves of bread made without yeast. 
This festival quite clearly typifies the coming of the Holy Spirit, which occurred on this very feast day in order to bring Jews and Gentiles, apparently represented by the two loaves of bread in Leviticus 23, into one new man. Thus, these four spring feasts are all images of the major events of Jesus Christ's first coming. While the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread speak to us of Calvary, which Christ alludes to in the Last Supper when he says, This is my blood and this is my body, the Feast of Firstfruits and Pentecost point to his resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit, respectively. It is no wonder, then, why Warren Worsby calls Leviticus 23 the calendar that tells the future. So today we looked at the first four festivals which all occur in the spring and all typify the final great events of the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. But interestingly, after these four festivals, there's a long break where no festivals occur. But after the summer break comes three more festivals. The question is, if the first four festivals represented events in Jesus' first coming, then what do the summer, does the summer break represent and what do the three remaining fall festivals typify? Well, we're going to answer that question tomorrow. That'll be very interesting because I was reading in some Christian history again that the, the year actually began in the autumn for the Jews. So that's very interesting. Mm. All right. Very good. Uh, Janice? We have something that we've been talking about the last week that we would love to invite you to. And that is an in-person event that we're going to be hosting in Brampton, Ontario, Canada, in a faith gospel tabernacle. We're going to be there from one o'clock in the afternoon till 5.30. Each one of us here is going to be taking a segment and teaching from the book of John, which is actually where we will be in the Bible guide around that time. So we will be able to speak with you and in between our sessions, we'll be able to sit and have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and just be able to enjoy meeting you. So if you would like to come and attend, it's free registration. We would just like you to register so that we know how many to prepare for. And uh, you can do that by going on to BibleDiscoveryTV.com forward slash register, or you can call our Canadian office. I do believe that while I'm talking, there is a slide that you're seeing right now with all of the pertinent information that you will need. So we really hope to see you there October the 21st from 1 o'clock until 5.30. All right. Then you can see you guys live. Won't that be right. exciting? Be so live fun. People. And I'm pretty sure there's also going to be a Q&A portion. There will be. There's going to be some fun surprises as well. So True if enough. you're in the area, stop, stop on in. Exactly. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Now, this willing to give. I have three minutes and 33 seconds. That's a pretty nice time to have left here. Now, what I wanted to focus on here in, in Matthew chapter 26, we have the anointing at Bethany from this woman that we later on, we learn um, in John chapter 12, verse 3, we learned that this was Mary. Do you remember Mary and Martha and their bro brother Lazarus, who was raised from the dead by Jesus? Well, it's this Mary that in anoints Jesus for burial. And there's a kerfuffle over her using this, this expensive perfume that she's pouring over the head of Jesus. And it's very misunderstood by his disciples. And Jesus takes a moment to be able to correct their thinking. 
And it really amazes me how that when you realize who this Mary is and all that Jesus had poured into her, in her healing and in raising her brother from the dead, this gift, this act that she did to Jesus by pouring this costly oil over him uh, is just it's just amazing. And when she did that, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. This gift that was so misunderstood by those that were there, Jesus corrected it. And even today, on this program, on this day, we are talking about this woman and what she did. Now, on the flip side, right away, we go into verse 14. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. He had just witnessed this. He had just heard what Jesus had said. And Judas said to the chief priests, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? Isn't it interesting that this woman that had experienced so much of the outpouring of Jesus in her life wanted just to do something and did this beautiful act on him, this anointing at Bethany. And one of the twelve, Judas, seeing the works of Christ, was only interested in what he could attain. What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? Today I would hope that our hearts are like that of Mary. You know, a lot of people say, well, you can't work for your salvation. That's absolutely true. But what we do do is when we give, we give and we serve God because of what he has done for us. He has given his life to pay the ransom once and for all. And we have a choice to make. Will we accept that? Do we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, or do we not? We have a choice. Are we willing to give, or do we want to get to see what we can get, like Judas did? Just food for thought today. I'm going to tell you about October 21st. It is a great day because we're going to be live on that Saturday at Faith Gospel Tabernacle. Corey, Ryan, Janice, and myself would like to meet you in Brampton, Ontario, Canada. And if you can make it to Canada, we're right across the border from New York. Please come up and see us. We'd like to spend the time with you. Go to our website and register. It's free of charge. Lord, 
Help us to learn to listen to you today and to do what you've told us to do. In the name of Jesus, amen.